So uh, we're in the midst of uh, Jesus being uh, forced through these mock trials, these illegal arrests and trials that he's going through. And Peter is in the midst of being confronted. Uh, We're at uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 66, where it says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, they were up in the house, he is below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also are or were with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, a few things about this, right? John chapter 18, I especially through Jesus' ministry because of the other gospels, we're able to reach over and pull in and great, you know, gain greater insight to what we're presently studying. John chapter 18, verse 18, uh, there he records, now the servants of the high or of the officers, uh, who were who had made a fire of coals stood there for it was cold okay that's significant and they warmed themselves peter stood with them and warmed himself okay uh, the brutality of what jesus is going through including he began to sweat great drops of blood in the garden of gethsemane now he's saturated wet and cold okay his body is going to be fighting shock tremendously. Flip that over, Peter's able to comfort himself. right? While Jesus is in this trembling, shaking, cold condition, Peter is warming himself. We do that. Even, you know, huddling up against the enemies of Christ in order to find some earthly, worldly comfort. You say, well, I'm lonely. I'm, uh, you know emotional i'm i'm distraught i need camaraderie uh, yeah and you're going to pay the price too you know you're going to have the shame like peter did uh, of putting yourself in a compromised position peter puts himself in this place for the comforts of his flesh uh, to warm himself with them uh, 66 had said this was the servant girl of the high priests right luke Chapter 22, verse 50, tells us uh, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John tells us it was Peter. Uh, Peter cut off Malchus's ear. you got to know this is big news in the household, right? Send out a contingent. Somebody comes back with their ear reattached, uh, right? The, the story is going to run through the household, uh, now a servant girl is confronting, you know, much like at your job, you know, employees are going to spread the news around about the latest event. It's it's moved uh, rapidly through. Now he's being confronted in verse 66. In verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster Crowed. We made reference to the fact, right, in the previous study, Jesus um, uh, said that before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him three times. Um, We we looked at, examined, quoted the Mishnah, which specifically said no chicken or rooster was allowed inside city limits uh, because they pecked at the food and they might be pecking in uh, something that was 
unclean and then turn right around and be pecking in something that was ceremonially clean and defile it. So it was forbidden to have or keep chickens or roosters inside Jerusalem. And we make the, the point that when God says a thing is going to be so, it's going to take place. Uh, that that uh, a rooster will crow, even though they're forbidden inside the city. One rogue rooster has made it inside city limits uh, at the appropriate time. A rooster crow. Verse 69. The servant girl saw him again, so same servant girl began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Uh, he doesn't have a southern drawl. He has the northern drawl uh, there of Galilee, and um, everyone recognizes that. And it, it is uh, you know, much like uh, deep south southern drawl, uh, it's it's not something that you would like be able to disguise or hide or deny. You know, I don't have a southern southern drawl. I I uh, was sitting in this man's yard in Louisiana right after Hurricane Katrina, and there's like 20 trees down on this property. His garage is the only thing left standing. Two massive pine trees right through the middle of his house. We're cutting up trees and talking, and it's 100 million degrees, and we're sitting in the shade uh, drinking sweet tea. His name was Chris, and uh, I say something to the nature of, I could never live down here. It's way too hot. You know, I come down, work with you, glad to help out, stay as long as we need, but I could not live in Louisiana. And Chris said, well, it was a lot hotter last summer. Of course, there was a lot more shade too. You know, <laughs> all the trees are on the ground, right? You know, he can't hide that deep southern draw. Peter can't. It's it's that noticeable. If you're from Israel, they they insist even to this day they know the regions very well by the draw. And uh, here, as he's being confronted, uh, everyone is uh, you know from. Uh, Jerusalem, they're all Galileans, and they recognize uh, his accent, and he's the only one with it. You know, Jesus has it, and, you know, Peter has it. He's the only one present there that has this accent. Uh, your speech shows it. Now, in 71, it says, Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. All right, now, <clears throat> yes. He is using foul language. He's cussing. But the swearing portion, so that's why it says curse and swear, because the swearing portion of it is to take an oath. And the oath, the way it's written in the Greek language, is an oath unto eternal condemnation. Literally, literally, uh, forgive the crassness, but he, he says, may I be eternally damned if I know the man. He pronounces anathema upon himself. Okay. Um, you know, you, you, you got to let your mind wander. You know, if, uh, you know, you run into me 
with some of your friends in public and say, hey, well, these are my friends and I'm acting like, I'm sorry, do I know you? You know, that's going to be offensive. If you insist, oh, well, like you're offended and you demonstrate you're offended. What is this? You know, I, we, we have known you know for so long. Why, why are you saying? Why are you acting like you don't know me? I do not. You know, now I'm you know really proclaiming to everyone. I do. I don't know why. They're just. I mean, do you have a mental illness? Why are you talking to me? You know, what I'm saying I don't know you. That's the level of escalation. And then imagine. If you know, throw your hands up in the air and make. I, I swear before God, may He strike me. May I, you know, may I be eternally condemned if I know this person. That is that is quite a proclamation uh, on Peter's part to go this far with his denial of Jesus Christ. Uh, verse seventy-two, a second time, the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Now, I want to add a parallel to that from Luke 22, verse 61. It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He, he's denying knowing Jesus, right? Because Jesus is up in the house. He's down in the courtyard. And the way it's written seems to tell us that they bring Jesus out at that moment to usher him through. And he makes eye contact uh, with Peter as the words are coming out of his mouth. You know, the eternal condemnation upon himself. When, he, when it says, you know, he, he thought about it and wept, it's the idea of he was crushed in the moment with the failure. I, I make the point that strongly because so many people who have fallen in their faith get a sensation like, I can't ever be restored. Uh, ha have you ever been in the midst of, of pronouncing eternal condemnation upon yourself with foul language included. You're throwing in a, a, a few expletives with an eternal condemnation as the Lord makes, you know, spiritual eye contact with you. You know, there's, there's something there that confronts you from your faith right in the moment. And, and you press ahead in the denial right that's that's a potent statement right you know you, you got to look across the the examples given in the scripture you know david was a murderer i'm not encouraging any of us to to fail and flounder and fall in sin but the lord restored david the, the lord restores Peter, I'm confident the Lord can restore us. What, whatever degree our failure has been, right? It's, it's obviously not, I'm not encouraging us to fail. The scripture is encouraging us to fail. But if we find ourselves in the place where guilt and shame just, you know, wreck our heart, understand the grace of God. Understand his love and his uh, restoration. You know, with that, uh, I, I always take us to 2 Corinthians 
chapter 7, verse 10, that says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading, uh, uh, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Um, there's a lot of people inside Christianity that um, have a mentality that says, as long as I'm, as long as I feel tremendously guilty, like that's somehow what God is looking for. And they often, I've had conversations with people who they interchange repentance with sorrow. And I confront them with, like, are you thinking that sorrow equals repentance? I've had a couple of them say yes. Yes, it is. It's not, it's not even connected. So, sorrow is not repentance. Regret is not repentance. Repentance is turning around and going the opposite direction. That's literally what it means. Metanoia, to change your mind literally we don't, it would, English doesn't do well with the term repentance it means to change your mind 180 degrees go exactly the opposite direction so many people will express guilt express sorrow regret and then never change repentance hear me in this repentance is only change okay we we assume and the scripture seems to indicate that that sorrow is associated with the process of repentance, right? Regret is there, but but repentance is only the change. That's the turnaround. If there's no turnaround, then there is no repentance. Fall on the floor, weep and wail. Uh, you know, present all the regret you can. Just you know, be to yourself. Uh, that is not repentance. Regret is not repentance turning around, going the opposite direction with your life and with your behavior. John confronting the religious leaders as they come out to witness his baptism. You know, who warned you to you know, flee from the coming wrath? Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Show the world that you've changed, is what he's saying to them. You know, in contrast, the sorrow of the world produces death. You know, the contrast in these two things is Matthew chapter 27, verse 5. Then Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed, went, and hanged himself. That's sorrow, regret. It's the ultimate expression of the regret and the worldly sorrow. There's no repentance. There is no, as much as it sounds like it, right? He comes, I've betrayed innocent blood. So what, they say. He even returns the money. He throws that into the temple. I want nothing to do with this. So what? No repentance. Why? He kills himself. He, he, he allows the regret to produce death. Right? Peter denies to Jesus' face. And he's restored by Jesus. Right? John chapter 21 verses 15 through 17 he sees Jesus on the shore. Peter jumps in the water, swims ashore. The conversation ensues. Do you love me unconditionally? Peter says, you know, we're friends. Feed my sheep. Asks a second time, do you love me unconditionally? He says, you know, we're friends. 
tend my lambs. Asks him the third time, are we actually friends? Peter can only answer by saying, you know all things. We see, do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes. And really what it is, is the Lord saying, you, know, you said you would die at my side. And then you denied knowing me with cursing and swearing and eternal condemnation oath upon yourself. Do you actually love me unconditionally, Peter? Peter can't bring himself to say, I love you unconditionally. He says, we're friends. Feed my sheep. Do you love me unconditionally? We're friends. Jesus dumbs it down. Are we actually friends? And what does Peter say? He basically says, you're the one who really knows. <laughs> right? Jeremiah the prophet said the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And deceitful above all things. You can tell yourself you know how you're going to behave and turn right around and you won't. Right? The Lord knows and loves us just the same. The Lord knows our heart and he wants to restore us. The restoration is in the turning. It's in the going the opposite direction, turning ourselves around. So now in 15, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes, the whole council. So now we're reassembling uh, the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the, the, uh, um, the Supreme Court of Israel is what we're looking at. They bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Now, uh, uh, up until... Um, 1962, uh, there up until a mockery of the scriptures began in around the 1900s, uh, because all these big thinkers, you know, started to look at things, you know, and criticize the Bible from a, a, a supposed scientific point of view. You know, the, the industrial revolution and science begins to, uh, you know, take hold. I'll deviate for a minute into a separate subject. Uh, you know, this issue of creation versus evolution, just want to touch on that for a second, right? Uh, you know, here you have uh, Charles Darwin, who's formulated a concept that was actually taught to him by his father, okay? It, uh, Charlie wasn't actually the guy who put together the theory of evolution. It was his dad, and uh, he put it in writing. So he'd been fed this most of his life, and his father, being a theologian, detested Christianity and wanted to move towards a more scientific way of explaining the existence of creation. So Charles is raised in this mindset, and he formulates, after going to the Galapagos Islands, this theory uh, uh, of evolution and bases it entirely got some other things that he throws in later, but it's based entirely upon the existence of finches there on the island and the difference in their bill sizes uh, from the finches he's used to seeing uh, in throughout England. Um, and, and what it comes down to is their food source, right? It, you know, if you've got food source for finches where the seeds are all down inside little crevices and pods, uh, then uh, the finches that have short bills that are very thick and strong are going to all die off because they can't get down in there and get those, okay? Uh, if, if you have the opposite uh, where uh, the thin-billed finches 
are present and their only food source is inside really tough husks and thick shells than the finches that have the short, very stout beaks that can crack that open and get at the food source, they're going to survive and procreate. And that's what he was looking at was the differences in finches. And he's thinking, oh, that the bills just naturally made these changes based upon, you know, evolutionary process. The food source was eliminating uh, certain types of finches in the setting. So he formulates this he made that hypothesis, and again, let's dwell on hypothesis, right? In, you know, 1868, no one's even looked through a microscope at, you know, the microbial world yet. You know, we're just beginning to see Louis Pasteur, you know, discover uh, life does not come from non-life. So these theories that we see that we call scientific begin to influence the world. And in the early 1900s, oh, there's this move. Oh, we're making these machines and these factories and we're mass producing. And there's this move away from faith towards, you know, science. We're all going to follow science. So now the critics began to say, oh, well, we, we haven't found any archaeological evidence of Pilate. So, yes, you know, we, we have all of these other Roman emperors that were aware of Caligula and Nero and all these other, but we, we don't... Pontius Pilate, we don't, who is that? There's, you know, that's something the Bible made up is what they're claiming. And therefore, since Pilate's made up, Jesus must be made up. And that criticism grows, especially in the seminaries, until you get to 1962. And this is one of the strong arguments that there's no historic scientific evidence of the existence of Pilate. And so they're renouncing the Scripture. You can't believe the Scripture claims to be infallible, and yet Pilate never existed. There, by 1962, they're saying it that way. Pilate never existed. Right? That's an imagination of the Bible. Well, over a thousand years earlier, the prophet Isaiah uh, had made his proclamations. The Lord speaking through him, he makes these proclamations against all of the nations of the time. He pronounces the woes upon each one of the nations. And in it, Isaiah chapter 19, beginning at verse 5, he makes proclamation against Egypt. And in particular, he pronounces these statements about the Nile River and what's going to happen there. So the waters will fail from the sea. The river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will, will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river, all the crops, will wither, be dr uh, driven away, and be no more. The fishermen will, will also mourn. Also those who lament, who cast books into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed. Uh, again, that was given some 1,500 years previously, and that was being mocked. So all these different things, mocking the Scripture, saying that's false, Pilate's fault, uh, you know, the, the Nile River has not dried up, all of these different things. Well, the Egyptian government listening to the profound science 
of the communist industry allowed for them to come in and engineer the Aswan Dam. And in 1960, the Aswan Dam is built. And it's with this mindset of we need to control the flooding of the Nile Delta. Then the flooding of the Nile Delta is what brings all this life that, that we're told here in this passage is going to be destroyed. They build the Nile Delta and they start dredging it. The Nile Delta, right? Because the Nile brings this massive amount of silt into the Mediterranean and just dumps all of it. Well, the, the, the Delta builds up and the river has to find another, another course around it. So it literally goes out and around, cuts new channels and brings all that water, all that rich nutrient and silt out into those regions. Annually, the Nile Delta flooded out and brought life to all of those regions. They build the dam, they dredge the delta, they control the flood and the silt deposit, and the Nile Delta dies, just withers. The reeds and the flax, and because of the continuous exposure, snails are allowed to multiply in mass and burrow holes in all of the vegetation. It just wipes everything out. From 1960 to 1962, the Nile Delta is turned into a dust bowl, destroyed. Uh, the Nile Delta is still there, but at a fraction of what it was. And that's all in the name of industry, right? The Mississippi Delta, and many of you have been there. Same things going on. The need for all of those levees, the Army Corps of Engineers is constantly dredging out uh, the Delta in order to keep the water flowing. Why? Because the Delta builds up and the river wants to naturally change course. Well, once you've built a massive city there, you can't let it change course through your city and destroy everything. We, in our infinite wisdom, are destroying all of these natural, fertile locations. Well, we're not even halfway there yet. The Nile Delta dries up, the whole thing dies, and just two years later, there's uh, helicopter pilots, uh, Israeli helicopter pilots flying back into Israel, and they see this huge, massive, horseshoe uh, there and uh, in, the, in the desert sand because uh, the silt deposit that has been building up these massive dunes every year isn't happening anymore. So now the wind is just carrying all of that sand away and what uh, ends up being exposed is the massive amphitheater in Caesarea Maritime. So, so they, they contact the historical societies, the archaeological digs begin. They unearth the amphitheater, and there on the side of the amphitheater is a massive plaque honoring Pontius Pilate, who had funded the whole construction of the region. All of the critics just wither away and don't step forward. You know, they they renounce the scripture and talked about you know we're more scientific. You know, Pontius Pilate never existed. All day. then, when they're disproven, uh, no one's there to say, uh, you know, we were wrong. We just like to clarify, Pontius Pilate did exist. So when you hear the, the higher critics, higher critics—that's what they've named themselves, right? You read Romans, and the, and the judgment that is to come upon humanity. Right? There, that little statement, chapter one, begins at verse eighteen. And it says, them declaring themselves to be wives, wise have become fools, right? Declaring themselves wise, they have become, but declaring themselves wise. 
right? We begin a process of naming all of the different classes of animal kingdom based upon Darwin's whole theory of evolution. Are you, are you familiar with what we've named ourselves? Yes. Homo sapien, right? Which, which Latin, human wisdom. That's, that's what homo sapien means. Human wisdom. Declaring themselves to be wise, they have become fools. God's judgment is coming upon humanity. You're watching it unfold in the nightly news all around us. And I can tell you right now, it's closer than it's ever been. If you're thinking like, oh, they've always been saying that. Look, enough time has passed. You've got to admit, it's closer than it's ever been, just based upon the time that has passed. Right? Tell me, based upon the atmosphere, politically, socially, everything you're seeing, it's not closer than you've ever seen. I don't know if you saw today. I'm ranging all over and just ranting. I know that. Jen Psaki, God bless her. Uh, so she she uh, she proposed the concept that perhaps what's happened to Vladimir Putin is that he's he's in fact gone insane because uh, of the profound isolation that has occurred during COVID nineteen pandemic. So you know. <clears throat> In other words, it's not his fault. Okay, let, let me let me just let me just uh, heap something on that maybe she didn't consider. So you're saying that all of these mandates and isolations are bad? They're bad for mental health. This is the same woman whose advice just weeks ago was we should all get drunk. I don't know if you caught that, right? If you're being overwhelmed with this, you probably just need to have a martini, is what she said. Yeah. You know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, right? But delights himself in the ways of the Lord, in the word of the Lord. And in his law, he does meditate day and night. Blessed, happy. So, <clears throat> Pilate, they deliver him to Pilate, verse 2. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. I, I'm always disappointed with the phraseology of verse 2 because that's an outright yes in the English language. If we were to do a modern vernacular transliteration straight from the Greek language into English, it would be just one word, yes. Okay, it, It's an absolute uh, affirmation of the question. There, there is no slight to it whatsoever. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It is as you say. That's very, very significant. Very significant in the moment and all of the historic context. You've got to go back uh, to Matthew chapter 2 to really get this into crystal clear focus. Okay, So the birth of Jesus Christ. Right, that's where we're at in Matthew chapter two. I'll read in just a moment. Want to just give us a little Christmas lesson and uh, get our hearts and minds aligned with this again, right? So we have uh, the wise men who come from the east to Jerusalem to inquire, or you know, inquire of Herod uh, where is the one who was born king of the Jews. And we'll, we'll dwell on this for just a moment. A few things about 
who they are. So if you're studying through the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, Daniel is actually part of the royal family. He's descended from King David, and he's taken away into captivity, and he's put under the tutelage of King Nebuchadnezzar. He, he puts him in the school of Magi. Okay, uh, You may have actually heard the uh, wise men referred to as Magi. Okay, What happens over time, Daniel proves himself out to be the wisest of all of the wise men, the soothsayers, the counselors that serve King Nebuchadnezzar. So he's a captive from Israel. He's living in Babylon. Uh, you can read the book of Daniel, particularly the first chapters, and you see Daniel resist all of the training and the luxurious food that's being given to the wise men that serve King Nebuchadnezzar. So he takes this strict method of honoring the Lord religiously and ceremonially and even in his dietary restraints. I'm going to stay the course of being Jewish even though I'm now here as a captive inside Babylon. Uh, the king has a dream, needs interpretation, inquires of Daniel. He gives interpretation where no one else could, and the king makes him the head of the magi. So he's now in charge of training all of the wise men that serve Nebuchadnezzar. By the end of Daniel's life, you see that under King Darius, he is actually away on government business for the nation of Babylon. He, he's an ambassador for Babylon. He's been moved to this very elevated position of authority. The, the historic understanding is that while the soothsayers and the wise men and the magi as an order inside Babylon remains pagan, Daniel inserts within their order a tremendous amount of biblical insight. So that after he's passed from the scene, that knowledge and understanding stays with them. If you travel through history and study them, what you discover is they become the king makers of the entire Middle Eastern region. And by that I mean they keep all of the records very carefully. So when a king is going to be inaugurated to the throne, newborn son or you know, older son, there are a few of them, let's say, and the king passes away, and now they're going to inaugurate a particular son to be uh, the king, they would call the magi, and they would come with the records of lineage, and they would make the proclamation that this one who is being inaugurated to the throne is the rightful heir of the crown. So they're kingmakers. Have you heard the wise men referred to as three kings from Orient. We three kings from Orient are bearing gifts we traversed so far. They're referred to as kings. Why? Because they're king makers. Magi, king makers, wise men. So they come once they saw the appearing of the star and they follow it. They say three, but it was probably more than a hundred, right? Because you think about it, these men bear the power to say, ah, this one doesn't belong on the throne. Or to say, this is the rightful heir. So if you want to interfere with that, right? If you, if you want to mess with the election, 
right? These are the guys that you've got to get to. So they very often, when they traveled, had a huge security entourage with them. We say three kings because they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, those three gifts, just to complete that portion of the lesson, uh, gold is the gift that you bring to a king. Frankincense was used in the priesthood. It's a gift you would bring for a priest. Myrrh is embalming fluid. Why, why would you, you know, we'd like to present you with gold and frankincense and this coffin. You know, it's, it's a weird thing to bring to a child, to bring myrrh in this way. So they bring these three gifts, and, and then we come to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? king of the Jews, right? They're, they're talking to the king of the Jews, Herod, who is, according to his own uh, opinion, a Jew himself, but he's been appointed by Rome. Rome has put him there under the authority of the emperor. These Imagine, imagine having the gumption to stand in front of this murderous man and I mean murderous, right? The emperor said that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's household than to be his own son. He had murdered his own sons. Two of them he murdered with his own hands. He choked them to death, right? That, that is, I mean, if you've got power enough to send somebody, just go stab him, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's black enough. But you choked the life out of your own child? That's, I mean, it's frightening to consider what kind of individual you are. And now these three men, you gotta, you got to let the whole thing kind of gel together in the idea of how much authority do you have to have in your own person, in your own position politically to stand in front of a king such as this and say to him, where is the one who rightfully belongs on the throne you're sitting on? Without fear of repercussion to yourself. Where's the one who's born king of the Jews, is what they asked. You don't think him murderous? What happens following, right? He finds out when the star appeared, he sends a contingent of soldiers down to Bethlehem, and they kill all the children in Bethlehem, all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. He, he's absolutely insane. Uh, so, so this question, right, is is now embedded in the mind collectively of Rome, right? There, there were these wise men, these kingmakers that came and questioned Herod. Where's the one born king of the Jews? Now Pilate is saying, are you actually the king of the Jews? What he's saying is, all those years ago when those men came to Herod, are you that guy? Is that who you are? And when Jesus' answer comes, yes. Right, This rattles the cage. Pilate at this point is, is very concerned about his own political standing here in this moment. This, this, this is a game changer right here. This is a very, regardless, right? Pilate has dealt, and he's going to even reference it here. He has dealt with the immature insecurities of the religious leadership of Jerusalem for all the years that he's been there. He knows and understands who they are as an entity. But right now, 
he's asking a question that is strictly in the political realm. Are you the one that was born king of the Jews? Yes, I am. He's now got to seriously consider everything that he's about to do. There's a very serious consequence to this. The chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. The reason that he marvels is when someone's being accused by this, generally speaking, there's a degree of truth to it. And so the natural tendency is to try and overpower by lying. He's seen it many, many times. In his position, he has seen many accusations come against people, and there's that stupid grade school frenzy of, no, that's not what was said, and everybody's arguing and you know spitting and fighting, and the whole scene gets really chaotic. Jesus remains silent. Why? Because legally he's supposed to. He's not supposed to answer. According to Levitical law, he cannot testify in defense or accusing of himself. It's against the law. So Jesus remains silent. And Pilate's never seen anything like that. He's never seen anybody just stand and say absolutely nothing. Seemingly the way that it's written, Jesus lends them no expression, right? No expression. Accusations made, Jesus doesn't throw his head back and roll his eyes. Right? You know, he said he would destroy the temple. None of that is going on. He just stands and he just lets them run their mouths. And what, what inevitably happens when people are telling lies is it changes. Okay, tell a lie, right? You say this over here, but then a few minutes later you contradict yourself. This is the number one way that people are found in lies by detectives, is the lie is always changing. It never stays the same. So he marvels at this situation. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels, he's an insurrectionist who's tried to overthrow Rome, that he uh, that they had uh, committed murder in the rebellion. So he's a thief. The scripture tells us that he's a thief, he's an insurrectionist, and he's a murderer. Now, you know, you throw in there that he's an insurrectionist trying to overthrow Rome, you might think, like, maybe the people like him. They hate Barabbas. Because Barabbas has, one, murdered not just Romans, he's, he's murdered Jews. He's also been a thief. So it's not as though you know, he's someone who's admirable in their eyes, who's simply trying to form a local militia and overthrow the government. He's untrustworthy, unsavory, bad individual, murderous, thief in their midst and even the issue of the insurrection as much as they hate rome you don't kick rome right the people hate this they want peace they want quiet do not make rome angry if you're gonna make rome angry you better do it with victory 
right? If you're if you're going to attack Rome, then it needs to be that you completely overthrow Rome. Don't be the next insurrectionist Jewish wacko who drives Rome insane, and then we all pay the cost collectively. So so here, Barabbas is is not like some Robin Hood hero in their midst. He's a bad dude that they they helped put in prison and they want him executed. They don't they don't want him to be in their midst. There's an interesting little element within this. His name is Bar Abba, Bar Abbas, Abba Abbas, son of the father. Abba, daddy, son of daddy, right? Follow this. You have Jesus, the son of the father, and you have Bar Abbas, son of the father, right? But Barabbas has done nothing but create murderous problems in their midst, right? Jesus confronting the religious leaders says, you're sons of the devil. You do the will of your father. You plan on murdering me. I'm paraphrasing that in. Uh, but he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. Right? That's his native tongue is lies. And you do the will of your father. Barabbas. What father are we talking about here? Right? And this is the way of the world. You know, they, they have that which fathers them. And we have that which fathers us. And they will always desire their father. As we should always desire our father. Our hearts should be pulled naturally. Our hearts will be pulled naturally to that which fathers us. Think about that for just a minute. You know, the, the world, as much as sometimes it gets caught up in religion and would want the salvation and all that God provides. Jesus has been feeding people, healing people, raising people from the dead, casting out demons, doing wonderful things. You would think they would want Jesus. And when you look at it and you're left going, what in the world? Why, why do they want Barabbas? It's because they want that which is their father. Son of the father. What father? Barabbas is certainly not the son of our heavenly father, right? And there's, you know, church tradition that Barabbas becomes a believer, you know, through this process. Possible, okay, possible. I got no way to confirm anything about that. What I do know about Barabbas biblically is, right, murderous, thief, insurrectionist. Jesus, prince of life, right, worker of miracles. They do not want the good they want the bad. They choose Barabbas, son of the father. So here, uh, as we move into verse 8, then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Listen, the way that that is written isn't the idea of he knew 
through intuition. It's the idea of he had been informed, right? He's got spies everywhere. He's got people that are, you know, witnessing and seeing and bringing him information constantly. So, so when it said, when the scripture records for us that he knew the chief priest had handed him over because of envy, he knows what their motivation is, right? Conversations have been brought back to him. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're saying. He knows what their secret meetings are about. And he knows that it is entirely because of envy. Verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, what then do you want me to do with him you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. They're intent on murder. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. You know, th there is no reasoning. There is no logic. You're not going to be able to sit down and sort through why someone does something like this. It's completely illogical. Why, why would you want to get rid of Jesus? You know, even if you're not a follower, right? he's doing great things in your community. They want nothing to do with it. You know, on a human level, I've had conversations privately with community leaders, you know, Bangor, as they're bringing in the casino. And they know, they know, built into bringing any casino into town, there is a fixed percentage of criminal increase it doesn't matter all they're presenting to the public is money revenue tax relief right that is that is nothing more than a public relations game right allow they know right places where there was previously little to no prostitution you're going to have a massive increase in prostitution you know Massive increase in drug addiction and, and drug dealing within your community. Violent crimes are going to go up. Like It's so much that it's, it's actually a, a scientific mathematical process. They know the percentages of increase. You know, big discussions I've had with uh, people regarding the legalization of marijuana. Oh, we're going to see financial gains ignoring the fact that there are known percentages of massive financial loss that way offset any way offset any financial gains in the process you know and and, and if we ever wondered right uh, you know, people want to say well we've never done it in America well we had right i mean colorado had done it years before and all of those percentages were in and what's remarkable is that historically look back across every place that has done this, Amsterdam and otherwise, every single thing that you introduce, there are known percentages of increase in loss. They're all loss. And, and all they ever want to concentrate on is, you know, whatever, $13 million in marijuana sales and the percentage. Well, you know, $2.5 million went to education. You're joking, right? 
I mean, the brains that were damaged by this are going to be that much harder to educate. Why are we even trying to, right? Literally, I'm not not mocking that. You know, the money expended inside law enforcement and all that you had to do, loss, 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 loss. Colorado, 700% increase in hospitalizations due to marijuana. That, that, that's emergency room visits, right, of overdose. Everybody goes, impossible. You can't overdose on marijuana. Very, very difficult to overdose smoking marijuana. Edibles, very easy to overdose. Oh, well, how much edibles are being produced? Glad you asked. 80% of the market is edibles. 80%. You know, you know, 20% of the consumption is by children that aren't even of age to acquire it. It's moving out of the legal realm down into the illegal realm and going into those uh, schools. They're always going to embrace Barabbas, you guys. You can make the logical presentation and they're just going to scream, crucify. <laughs> it's not, it's, they're not going to make any sense. They're, they're crying out, Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? He hasn't done any evil, but they screamed, crucify. So Pilate, wanting uh, to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. I'm going to dwell on the scourging just briefly, but I want to make this point, right? Isaiah 52, verse 14, from the New Living Translation, says, But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one could scarcely know he was a man. John chapter 19, verse 5, says, Then Pilate came out. Wearing the crown, uh, excuse me, I said Pilate. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Okay, Uh, That would more literally be translated, I know it's impossible to tell, but this really is Jesus, the man who you turned over to me. He brings out this bloody shredded mass that you can't even distinguish the gender of he's so physically destroyed and 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 says this really is the man you gave me within the greek language is the gender statement of this really is a man is what he's saying we've destroyed him physically roman scourging Often, if you've seen um, the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, it doesn't come close. Okay, uh, there were a couple methods uh, where this took place. Generally speaking, a scourging was an execution. They they killed you in the process. Um, they they usually didn't scourge anyone unless it was a capital crime. They, they tortured people, like if you were a thief or whatever. They had methods to torture people and get information out of them. Scourging 
was generally speaking a an execution. Um, the two methods were either two standing poles, and they did this depending on where you were and at what time, uh, where they would spread you as an X, standing, legs spread, like stretched, sometimes suspended up off the ground, arms stretched as an X between these two poles. Or the other method was four poles. They would lay you face down, stretch you out that way, with the pit of your stomach resting on a stump or a rock. So you're about 18 inches up off the ground, stretched between four poles. They used a cat of nine tails, about an 18-inch stave of wood, overlaid with leather that broke into nine separate strands that were braided with glass and bone and steel and lead through them, sharpened in them. The Romans being very pagan, would bring a goat to where they were going to perform the scourging. They would just drag a trench in the dirt and slit the goat's throat and drain the blood out there uh, in your presence. So you get to watch this animal die in preparation for your scourging. They would then begin... Uh, skinning and preparing the goat to roast. So, so they're barbecuing while they torture you. Uh, the executioner would stand in front of you so you could see and drag the cat of nine tails through the blood and the mud that was on the ground. So usually by now, whoever's about to be scourged is making confessions. They're, they're just, it was me and... You know, Billy Bob was with me and we broke in at midnight and they're just they're doing everything they can to to avoid what is coming. If they make full confession and that means full confession, they tell them everyone else that was involved so that they can just go round everybody up. And it, again, it's usually a capital crime. So usually murder was involved or or rape and they're going to kill you. So just shorten the whole process. If you made confession and the executioner wanted to be merciful, they would lay the first lash right around your neck and then rip it away and tear your throat open and you would just bleed to death right there in seconds and end of game. If you held out and you didn't offer them anything, then they would drag that through the mud and they would haul back and hold their pose very carefully till they knew right where they wanted to land that thing. And they would wrap it full around the body. They would just let it, you know, entrail and dig in. And once it had set in, they would tension it up and then rip it off so that it took flesh with it. Very often, it would cut all the way down to skeletal tissue. Lay, lay you open to the bone. They would drape that muddy, bloodied, article of cat and nine tails across their shoulder and come up and very mockingly, very soothingly say right in the person's ear, is there anything you'd like to tell me now? Usually the confession would pour out at that point. If you resisted, it would make them so enraged that they would start at your feet. You're naked, mind you. They would start at your feet and they would go to your head or your fingertips and they would just 
tear you apart. Wrapping full around your body, they knew how to lay it in in such a way so that just the very ends would lash at your body and tear you open. And that scourging would last for three to five minutes. Where they worked underside, front and back, top and bottom, every side of your limbs. So you were just a bloody, mangled, shredded ball of hamburger. Literally. Often, often, people would pass out repeatedly. And they had a process of ammonia and cold water and revive you. They didn't care if you were just shaking convulsively. They would put you through this. And if they wanted to do it that way, they knew how to stay away from vital portions, not tear your jugulars open, not render you unto death. They were highly skilled at this. The people that they allowed, very rare, the people that they allowed to survive usually died within an hour from the shock of the injuries. Anyone who survived past that was surviving because they were being immediately cared for by someone who was washing and cleansing their wounds. The dragging of the cat of nine tails through the goat blood and the mud repeatedly was laying all of that into every wound you received. So you were going to become infected. If you survived, even if they released you, it was miraculous. It was miraculous. And someone was tending to your wounds uh, for, a, for, for months and months and months, saving your life, and you were going to be a hideously disfigured human being for the rest of your life. People were going to see you, and they were going to be shocked, and they were going to lurch back at your appearance. And, and, and if the question was raised, what happened? I, I was scourged by the Romans. And usually, if you were scourged by the Romans, it was because you were a criminal. I was scourged by the Romans because I'm a criminal. So you're a walking billboard for them, right? Whatever this person has done, don't even think about doing it because you could end up like them in the end. Jesus has been destroyed physically, and Pilate makes the presentation in the hopes, it literally makes the statement, in the hopes that their bloodlust will be satisfied and they'll release Jesus. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, right? We shouldn't think of Pilate as being a good guy, right? He washes his hands, he scourges Jesus rather than just kill him. He's doing this out of an effort of self-protection, right? Why kill an innocent man? They're very superstitious, the Romans, right? You know, the universe might come back and haunt you if you kill an innocent man. So he's going through this whole process in an effort to try and save his own skin. What Jesus went through for us, you know, shedding great drops of blood inside the Garden of Gethsemane, brutalized and beaten, beard wrenched out, now scourged. When you're reading the Old Testament, and they finish the law, and they start the dedication of the priest in his robes, and the scrolls, and the sacrifice, and the tabernacle, and the altar. 
they're taking the blood of the sacrifice and they're spattering it on everything, right? They're spattering it on the scroll. They're spattering it on the priest. They're spattering it on the altar. They're spattering it on the tavern. Why? Because Jesus has been spattering his blood everywhere from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to when they finally pierce his side and the water and the blood flows out. Foreshadowing of our Lord's suffering. We were going to spend an eternity in hell being tormented. Jesus took that torment on earth so we could see it, so we could appreciate what he took away from us. We're not going to experience eternal torment because Jesus Christ absorbed it for us. That's the grace of our God substitutionary atonement. He made himself a man and he allowed himself to go through this so that we don't have to be tormented for eternity. Very, very gracious of our God. So we'll pick up at 15, uh, 16 next week. That's the time we have for now. Why don't we stand and we'll pray.